Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And hello out there to all of you Brooklyn folk and beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And uh, today is a very special day. Unfortunately, baseball in the tri-state area uh, got rained out. Uh, it, it is certainly drowned out around here right now. But have no fear. We are here for the Jackie Robinson Day festivities. And without further ado, let's welcome our uh, mini panel, if you will, uh, to talk about uh, both Jackie Robinson as well as specifics regarding the day he broke the color barrier in Major League Baseball. So without further ado, let's bring on our uh, our folks. We got out in Kansas City the Negro League, the official Negro League historian. I I, I believe Phil Phil Mr. Phil Dixon. Is that appropriate to say that you really are the way John Thorne has been crowned for you know Major League Baseball? Would you say that you are the the pinnacle of Negro League uh, uh, history within the field? Excuse me. Well, I'd like to say that I do my very best. Uh, I've been at it a while, and um, I've paid my dues. So, you know, if people like my information, they can call me what they want to. But when you want good history, I just want you to know my number's available. I like the way you phrase it. Uh, So thank you for joining us today to talk Jackie Robinson. And out in Brooklyn, uh, uh, holding down the fort uh, in all this rain, uh, the Brooklyn Trolley blogger himself, Mike LaColon. What is going on, Mike? You, you're a little bit of a Negro League historian yourself. Uh, I'm just passionate about baseball and anybody who played it. Uh, and if you played it here in Brooklyn, you know, I'm all over it. But uh, thank you, Sam. Thank you very kindly for that introduction. And hello, Phil. Great speaking with you hey again, there. sir. That's my pleasure. So let's get right into it. I hope you're all... Uh, somewhere warm and dry and not caught up in the rain. Uh, but, Phil, I think that's actually a good place to go. It wasn't raining on 4-15-1947, but by all indications, it was a similar sky, very overcast that day, a little bit of a chill on the air. If you could uh, start wherever you would, uh, wherever you would like regarding 4-15-1947 at Ebbets Field. Well, I tell you what, it was a historic day then when the Brooklyn took the field against the uh, Boston Braves. Uh, And a historic day then and uh, had about 25,000 people who watched history. That's not a lot of people, but that was a good crowd. And that was early in the season. And, you know, early in the season, you know, I played high school baseball, and on April 15th, you know, you could get 70-degree weather or you might get 30-degree weather. So so just one of those kind of things. But a very historic day and just really good to go back and uh, visit that period all over again. You know, it's 
it's interesting the way you say it, 25,000, you know, it is a, the capacity of the ballpark was only about uh, 30, uh, really 35,000, but they would fit 38 occasionally. Uh, what, was there a buzz in the air? What, what was going on within the crowd regarding the moment? Well, you know, and, of course, you know, I wish I wasn't, you know, I wish I could have been there. Of course, I wasn't there. But, you know, I think most people knew that it was going to be Jackie Robinson's debut. And when I researched newspapers, they would say Jackie Robinson, first Negro ever to reach the majors. So people were watching this event all over, and that was kind of like the little subtitle or one of the things that were mentioned in the article uh, from that game that day. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, people knew that this was a game to watch because it was something, you, you know, going to be unique and uh, one of the first modern-day black ball players, and, uh, and for some people, they were saying the first because most of them didn't get the history about Fleetwood Walker so that history wasn't even known to most people. And the big leagues, they basically pushed their own uh, agenda and called Jackie Robinson the first. And, um, it, boy, so many things you can say about that day, the people who were in there and, and some of the history of some of those guys that, that were actually there that day. Um, and even some of Jackie Robinson's own teammates as well. Uh, so uh, just just interesting. Uh, you know, it's, boy, you know, it's probably been talked about quite a bit, too, over the years, and people talk about it, but uh, it's always great to go back and revisit that day. So uh, if we could go real quick into who the first technical, first black player in Major League Baseball since, uh, like you said, it was really, Jackie Robinson was really the first in a modern sense uh, just because of, uh, basically, you know, as we've always talked about, the gentleman's agreement, the unofficial gentleman's agreement. Yeah, and you, and you know, it's it's interesting when you say modern because really baseball history doesn't – baseball – see, how can I put it? Writers of baseball history don't always separate the game from modern to, uh, say, post – we'll say pre-modern. And I'll give you an example – uh, I know there was. I was reading some articles here recently about ball players uh, who had uh, five hits on opening day, and uh, you know they mentioned uh, uh, different people. I think they mentioned uh, one of the guys with the Washington Centers. I wish I would have kept the article. I had it around for a few days, but they went all the way back to 1894, talking about ball players who had five hits on opening day. So when you talk about uh, Jackie Robinson, it's interesting that. You know, you would use the word modern when baseball history doesn't separate them at all, even though we know that there's a difference in the way the game was played in 1894 versus 2021. They're still not separating it. So before I, I go to Mike in terms of um, uh, kind of the modern Brooklyn feel, if you will, paint the picture for us. Uh, where was Jackie starting um, and, and how did he do? How was the day, how did the day go? Yeah, Jesse Robinson. Oh, that, which one? Do you, who you want to talk? Sorry, Phil. Go ahead, please. Before we go to Mike. Okay. Yeah, Jackie Robinson started at first base, which is kind of interesting because he came out of the Negro leagues, 
is a shortstop. And uh, Kansas City Monarchs, he had been a shortstop. And uh, so by the time he makes his major league debut, debut, he's a first baseman. And, of course, uh, that first game he went 0 for 3, by the way, had 11 put outs, but did not make an error. As far as I know, did not make an error that day. So, uh, yeah, maybe someone else can comment a little further on that. I well, believe, he did start like, to I'm see- sure. So Go I ahead, was Sam. just going to ask. Did, no, I was just going to ask. Um, did he walk and score a run? Am I, if I remember correctly. He 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 scored a run that day. He went over yeah. three officially at the plate. Uh, he got caught up in a double play, a fine a fine play in, in the field. So, you know, you can't begrudge him for that. Uh, but he didn't go hitless. Uh, but there was a lot of electricity in the air. You know, so uh, baseball, we know, is a game of averages. So, you know, you can't hold this singular game against him. Uh, but the electricity was undeniable. And uh, he did score a run. Yeah, it just it had my memory served me correctly. And, and um, unfortunately, I hadn't completely brushed up on exactly what happened that day. But, Phil... I'd like to talk about the Rachel Robinson angle of things, uh, which I, I, I don't think it gets talked about enough, but I, I do remember, um, and again, an, an episode that I haven't watched in a while, but I thought that Ken Burns did a pretty solid job with some of the work, basically bringing, showing it from her angle and, and what the day was like for her in the stand. So if you could talk about Rachel Robinson. Well, I, you know, I haven't actually, you know, spoken to Rachel about that specifically, and I can talk in general because one thing uh, Jackie Robinson faced, and he had many people who would come out to the game who did not want him to be there. But Jackie Robinson always had a lot of fans who were there who wanted him to be there. And I think uh, most of the times we talk about Jackie Robinson I don't think enough is said about the people who wanted him to be there uh, in those initial days of that first season and the support he had in trying to execute this. Yeah, he ran against some opposition, players on the field, fans in the stands, but he had a lot of really good support that he could lean on, and that helped him uh, make it through that most difficult period in breaking down the color barrier in Major League Baseball. A lot of people have said, I think it through uh, the through the since the day it happened, um, when they talk about the moment, a lot of people talk about how it couldn't have happened anywhere but Brooklyn. Um, Mike, I'll start with you since you are a Brooklyn boy uh, and you're down there currently. Do you think that is completely true with the environment of the times? Uh, of, you know, only 16 teams. Could it have really, truly only happened as, as smoothly, I guess if you're grading on a curve, as it did happening in Brooklyn? Uh, I think there's something to that. Uh, what a lot of people fail to uh, know and, and understand is Court Griffith, 10 years prior to Jackie Robinson, considered signing Josh Gibson. But he didn't have the guts. Uh, plain and simple, he didn't have the guts to follow through. Uh, and he also considered, you know, losing gate receipts because he was bringing in a good chunk of change when the Grays were playing at Griffith Stadium in Washington. 
So there was economic conditions, uh, uh, but there was also uh, apprehension uh, that people weren't getting over yet. Until Branch Rickey, we know he was a maverick, uh, and he was in all sorts of, of endeavors with numerous teams and numerous leagues, for that matter. So perhaps it's a combination of Brooklyn and Branch Rickey or Branch Rickey and Brooklyn. But, you know, today I, I say we – with, with great admiration for my borough of Brooklyn, there is no more diverse place on planet Earth than Brooklyn. Uh, I think that's fact. Uh, and perhaps part of that held true even back then. Uh, New York City, I always say, does not belong to America. New York City is not America, and America is not New York City. So this is a different condition that people come into uh, that really one does not face when you leave, say, the 100-mile perimeter of this city, uh, was starting in Brooklyn more uh, feasible and viable as opposed to another, another city, another one of the 15 cities? Yeah, perhaps. Uh, I would even go beyond that and say uh, most definitively. Uh, but it, it could have happened at the Polo Grounds. It could have happened at Yankee Stadium. But, no, it happened in here in Brooklyn. Uh, but, again, I, I don't think you could say Brooklyn without mentioning Brand, Branch Rickey. He was the maverick in all that. Uh, and, and, and it was his endeavors to constantly search and seek out talent for the sake of baseball and winning. Uh, but he knew what was at stake. He absolutely knew what was at stake. So there was, there was a lot more to this uh, than meets the eye. But, you know, that was the condition right. back then. And, uh, you know, Phil brought up that day in April 15th of 1947 that there was only 26, you know, rounded off 26,000 people there. And that's somewhat mystifying. All right. Yeah, it took place on a weekday, Tuesday. And, and, you know, that's a weekday. Back then, people still somehow found their way to the game. Uh, Unlike Mm -hmm. today where we have night games and you go after work. But 26,000 was low. And that's a little bit mystifying. In fact, the Dodgers drew the least or, or the fewest people of any National League team opening uh, or playing that day. That in itself is a little mystifying, not to mention that in the same city, the Yankees drew roughly 39,000 uh, folks to their game. But at the same time, mm-hmm. you see, that's, this is the mystifying part because the Dodgers – uh, throughout 1947, we know they played in one of the smallest parks in baseball, I think the second smallest park in the National League, yet they were first in attendance. So, you know, those are two conflicting statistics right there. Uh, I, I'd, I'd love to know more about that particular Tuesday afternoon, April 15th of 1947, and why only 26,000 people showed up. Interesting. Well, it it certainly yeah it may it makes me wonder uh, if there's anything in the Brooklyn Eagle which of course we you and I Mike now uh, finally have a, a little bit more access to so maybe uh, that's definitely uh, an endeavor for either you or me uh, Phil what were you about well to you say? know what but you know what Brooklyn Eagle or not as Phil says Jackie Robinson's arrival in Brooklyn was no mystery it, it was it was known. Uh, he played in an exhibition game in a Montreal Royals uniform against the Dodgers on April 10th. And that day, they drew 14,000 people to Abbott's Field. 
uh, again, that was an exhibition. Uh, but we also tend to forget the reason why there's a statue in Jersey City of Jackie Robinson, not necessarily one here in Brooklyn. There is one in Coney Island. Uh, but people tend to forget that because that's a, a minor league park and we want to see this on a major league scale. Uh, but 25,000 people showed up in Jersey City in 1946 to see an exhibition game, uh, including the Montreal, uh, Montreal Royals and Jackie Robinson. So he was no stranger here locally. We knew he was coming. We put that in quotes. We knew he was coming. Uh, it, but again, I have to point back to that attendance figure on April 15th of only 26,000. That's a little bit mystifying for someone they knew was coming their way. And for an event they knew was about to take place. You, you know, one thing that I like to add, because I'm, I'm loving this conversation, and I talk about this in my Dizzy Dean book, how, like, uh, the United Press, UP, or AP, they would put out a general article, right, about a ball game. And then when they went out to the newspapers, they could title that article any way they wanted to. So over the years, I've looked at southern newspapers and uh, tried to see how they would title it. So I'm just going to give you one. This is in the Knoxville, Knoxville, Tennessee newspaper when they talked about that first game. They said, Jackie Robinson finds thinking as much faster in the majors after making his debut. So you, you, if you read between the lines, you see that they're already – basically discounting that a black guy can't think like a white guy because he's playing Major League Baseball, even though Negro Leagues have been beating Major League teams and made them out playing out playing Major League Baseball players for years. But they wanted to focus in on his mind, and that's not typically what they would do with white baseball players. And then I also might mention another guy, uh, the owner of the Boston Braves, uh, Robert uh, Bob Quinn. In 1938, we're going to go back a few years, he prophesied that the National League would have colored players before the rival American League. And then he added that his Braves would integrate their team before the Red Sox. Now, is that prophecy or what? Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Uh, Yeah. I mean, you know, and he probably certainly had an idea as to uh, how racist, you know, the owners were over with the Red Sox, but... I guess that's certainly a digression. Um, Phil, I'd like to ask you the same question in terms of the Brooklyn question, uh, not being from Brooklyn, and what you know of the area and what you know of the Brooklyn Dodgers as well as Branch Rickey. Do you think it's uh, appropriate to say that it couldn't have happened anywhere else? Although when Mike brings up Washington, D.C., I wonder whether it was the progressive haven that it is now. Back then. Yeah, you know, I can't say that it couldn't have happened anywhere else, um, but it's, you certainly needed a place where there was enough diversity in the population, right? And uh, even though some cities like St. Louis had diversity, it took them years to get a, a black ball player. Cincinnati took them years. And, and of course, you know, uh, we know the story on Boston. So, could it have happened somewhere else? Yeah, it could have, but you needed a forward-thinking individual. And, uh, and uh, Branch Rickey, one thing that he was, he was all about trying to control uh, baseball 
through his minor league system early on. And so uh, I think he took a look at the Negro Leagues and thought maybe, hey, I might be able to do something here that's unique as well, which he did. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I, it seems like maybe it was the right place. Um, but, yeah, it's hard, to, it's hard to say looking back at it because there were some cities with more black population. But I, there's, no, there's no other Harlem in this whole country, you know. And outside of New York, the only other place I could think about would maybe be Chicago. Yeah, I that could see very, that. Yeah. That could happen yeah, in go Chicago. Ahead, you are no, that's right. Uh you just exploded a light bulb over my head. This could have very easily happened in Chicago. So with with that, here's my follow up question and I'll start with you, Phil. Do you think it was next to impossible for Branch Rickey to do anything in St. Louis at the time? <laughs> St. Louis a unique city. Matter of fact, St. Louis was, I think, the last team when all, uh, uh, when Bush bought the team. Uh, he they were the last team to stop segregated seating in their park. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, St. Louis and St. Louis actually in 1941, they were one of the last teams to actually allow black teams to play in their in their park as well. So. St. Louis probably wouldn't have been the best place. And, and of course, you know, I live in Missouri. And, uh, of course, in the Civil War, uh, St. Louis was considered the South. So, <laughs> so yeah, you can take that for what it's worth. But, yeah, it, it was a very segregated city. And, uh, once again, it started right at the bleachers. And the black people had the worst seat in the house because the bleachers weren't covered. And, and you know, Sam, Mike, I, I remember. Think this is also... Go ahead, Sam. No, I was just going to lead before I pass it on to you that Kurt Flood, uh, that that the, the owner uh, Bush, I'm totally spacing on his name, but he was unaware that Kurt Flood, I think in the early '60s, wasn't staying with the team. Hmm. I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking about that. That's not triggering any memories. But what I will say, we mentioned Rachel, and we mentioned the South, and we mentioned Montreal. And I think it's important, and this leads into Brooklyn. I think it's important because it came from Jackie and Rachel's mouth that Montreal – uh, was a, a tremendous assist in the transition from the South towards Brooklyn. Uh, they loved Montreal. They have nothing but good things to say about Montreal. Uh, and that served, playing there for a year, uh, that served as a major, major uh, transitioning uh, effect in, in both their lives. Uh, I think without that pit stop, Jockey's uh, debut might have been a little bit more difficult. Uh, I think because he started in Montreal and because of the reception he received there, the good reception, uh, it may have helped his confidence as he stepped forward into this major endeavor. Bill, uh, 
uh, let me go to you with that. You know, I think that was a deliberate reason why uh, Brent Trinke put him in Montreal. And uh, if you could speak to that, but also contrast the uh, the experience that Larry Doby had. Where, where was Larry Doby before he came to Cleveland? Yeah, Larry and, and I'm sorry. Let, let me let me just. Where where was Larry? Where was Larry Doby in the minors uh, before he came to Cleveland? Excuse me. Okay, uh, Larry never went to the minors. Uh, he went straight right. from the Newark Eagles directly to the big leagues. Same thing. Actually, actually, it's the second black ball player, first in the American League. But the third and fourth players, Willard Brown and Hank Thompson, never went to the minors either. See, the, these ball players had major league ability, so they didn't really need to go to the minors, but they were buying players so fast uh, in the next couple of years, um, which was pretty much putting the Negro Leagues out of business, but they were buying ball players. They never had any intention of bringing them up to the big leagues. Uh, they bought so many ball players, and, and most of the big league teams had a quota that they won't talk about. But um, I think the New York Giants were the first team to actually have five black players, and they weren't bench, they weren't bench players either. So if you came up, you were going to be not a bench player. You were going to be in the lineup. And so, uh, yeah. And, you know, but I might also mention this uh, because we talk a lot about the particular game. Well, you know, after the game, Jackie Robinson couldn't even – take a, a shower in the same place as his teammates. I don't know if you knew that. That's interesting to speak of. Uh, and, of course, uh, if we were to go a little bit to the uh, the lead-up to the game, uh, the infamous petition that was squashed by by uh, Leo DeRocher and Branch Rickey. Um, so expand on that a little bit uh, as it pertains to what you just mentioned. I would elaborate just a little bit more. I want to make sure I'm to answer this correctly. Sure. No. Uh, just in terms of you know, with, with the petition in mind, and and where his, what what was the environment was within the clubhouse at that time? If you could expand on the fact that he wasn't even able to take showers with his team. Yeah. People, you know, it, it almost sounds incredible, but all of these or things that comes out of racism, the racist history of America. I always jokingly tell people, I say, you know, America, baseball was America's national pastime, but its other national pastime was racism. And so Jackie not being able to take a shower, you know, is, is, is kind of interesting. There's a whole history in that as well. And I might also mention, um, I, I, you know, I've, I keep, you know, pulling these articles, I just want to share a little bit more. So I'm going to throw, can I throw one more in there with you? Uh, yes, please. This is, uh, this is one from Greensboro, North Carolina, and they're talking about Job- Jackie Robinson giving an interview after the first game. First of all, they titled it, Jackie Remains Calm After Debut in the Majors, as if, you know, black people are real excitable, that kind of thing. And then he goes on to, to put a quote, it's, Jackie said, it felt good, very good. And he's talking about the first black player to reach the major, major leagues. And then the writer says, uh, uh, he said this between flashes of his piano key smile. And But th- there were all kinds of slanted oh, articles that came out of this first game. 
that have seemed to, seem to be overlooked over the years, but uh, the information is just there. And if you go to some of the southern newspapers, you, you will recognize some of these comments real easy. So. And it is also not just the southern papers. Uh, Mike, you know, it, it, it's also interesting to see some of these papers up north um, that, you know, sometimes the racism wasn't as out in the open, if you will. No, uh, on the one hand, uh, you know, we like to think as writers, as professionals, and in doing, in doing so, they're there to report. So if they're there to report the game, you're going to sound somewhat neutral. Now, if you're a feature writer, that's, you know, where the 64, the box of 64 crayons comes into play and all their colorful descriptions. Uh, but I, I think you just have to look at the author. You have to look at the newspaper or the tabloid and take that into context first. Uh, if you were a beat writer, you were just talking about the game. But if you were a feature writer, uh, you know, those are the ones who uh, got to expand a little bit more. And, and, you know, by doing so, we get a little bit of insight in, into the, the greater thinking. Uh, you know, racism is still alive and well. These are the post-war years, and now everyone's coming home, and they want things to go back to the way they were. Well, sorry, that's not happening. Things are about to change very quickly. Uh, so, you know, some people were Sounds speed, familiar, people Mike. Just Sounds familiar. Yeah, it really does. I mean, history repeats itself in so far as this conversation. You know, but, uh, you know, some people were up to speed and some people weren't. Some people were open and adaptive, and some people were simply, uh, you know, averse to change. Uh, and I think these people identified themselves very clearly in their work. Uh, as Phil says, researching these newspaper articles, you know, some of the descriptives, uh, right out of a box of Crayola crayons, they're so colorful. I, I mean, they really go out of their way to, to just not out, outright and overtly say what they're really thinking. Oh, my God. So here's an example, Phil, that I came across, and it was a completely inadvertent. I, I, I was looking for some, some other keyword, and I stumbled across the article, and it was something in the 30s from the New York Times talking about a mugging around like 72nd Street off of the park. And they don't mention the woman. They don't mention the race of the woman who was mugged, but they mention that it was a Negro man that mugged her. Um, and, you know, I, I think I'm the, the, the New York Times was probably rather whitewashed uh, uh, for years. Um, but it's even in, like, you know, little moments like that where it's not even necessarily the wording. It's just the fact that they have to, to specify the race of one person, but they don't specify the race of another. Yeah. You know, newspaper reporting at that time – you know, people like to think that they were getting just straight news. But even at that time, there were Republican slanted newspapers right. and Democratic slanted newspapers. I know I go and do research maybe in a small town. I know, I, uh, and you might see the newspaper would be the such and such Republican or the such and such Democrat. You see those in a lot of small towns. Uh, but but because of that, you you know. Those same things carry through with sports. So 
if you look at, you know, the southern newspapers, you probably say, okay, I can see that's the south. But, yeah, there was a lot of things going on in the, in the north as well. And then there was a lot of newspapers, uh, like, for instance, in Boston that same day. So played, they played Brooklyn. It was an author named uh, Arthur Sampson was his name. And basically his article, he subtitled in there, Thousands Remain Away in Protest. And then he talked about the scattering the group scattered groups of Negro fans through the stands. But he said that even the rabid Brooklyn fans stayed away, uh, even you know, even knowing that this was uh, you know, Jackie Robbins debut. So he actually talks about the protest, uh, that or that they were protesting. But once again, that's the that's the uh Boston newspaper and of course, Boston was their opponent today, so you can take that any way. But uh, yeah, certainly lots of good stuff out there. And, oh, by the way, the thing, it, it, it was 6,000 customers short of a, uh, of a packed house, 6,000 short. Mike, go ahead. It sounded like you were going to say something. No, I'm just saying, you know, we we like to celebrate what happens on the field, in between the foul lines, in the batter's box, and on the pitcher's mound. But after that 27th out, we still have to live life. And at some point, Jackie Robinson has to leave Ebbets Field. You know, that's uh, relatively, let's put this in quote, safe place to be for two hours a day. But you mm-hmm. still have to go out and live life. You brought up the issue of the showers. And those are all the changes which still need to take place. Uh, much of life is not catching up to what Branch Rickey, the Dodgers, and Jackie Robinson are trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. And, uh, I, there's so many different places that I want to go, but there was something that when you mentioned the statues, uh, Mike, I, I'm wondering. How, I'm wondering about this. So there is a statue of Jackie Robinson in Coney Island, but it also celebrates the unity of him and the white ball player Pee Wee Reese. So uh, I'm I'm wondering, um, and I'll start I'll start here with you, Phil. Please, do you think that like that? Ce- yes, it's celebrating the unity, but do you think there's still a little too much of the Celebrating the white people that accepted it, and, and mind you, I'm not trying. I'm not putting Pee Wee Reese down, uh, or the fact that like we we should talk about the fact that like like the story about Red Barber after hearing uh, about it from Branch Rickey, which we can go into in a second. But like, do you think there's still there needs to be more celebration of the individual as as opposed to the fact that like white people allowed it to happen? Yeah, I, I think it's still a lot that needs to be told about the Jackie Robinson whole experience. You figure that so much has be, been written on the story, uh, and a lot's have been written about, you know, Branch Rickey and his experiment. And But at the same time, I am still finding things to write about related to this day or the things that led up to this day, that things that surrounded it, and I know even talking to players like um, Joe Black over the years, he used to tell me that 
Jackie Robinson would have fights with his teammates under the stands, his own teammates, or players on other teams under the stands that people never knew about. And, uh, he, you know, he gave me some names of some players. So I'm not going to mention them today. I, I don't know if he really ever wanted to know them. But, yeah, Jackie Robinson was actually having fights. So when you see him on the field, you didn't really want to mess with that guy for real. But some people wanted to challenge him away from the field. And, of course, you know, you don't hear anything about who roomed with Jackie when he went on the road. He, he, you don't hear much about he couldn't stay in the hotel. You know, you can name specific hotels. I know here in Kansas City, there's a hotel that's still in business now. And uh, when Elster Howard joined the Yankees as late as 1955, he couldn't stay at that particular hotel, which is in downtown Kansas City, uh, Missouri. So they came over to my hometown, which is a lot smaller, Kansas City, Kansas, right across the river. And the Yankees uh, came to my hometown to stay in the townhouse hotel because they couldn't get uh, their player would not be able to stay with them in Kansas City, Missouri. Still Missouri again. So uh, we don't talk enough about who room with Jackie. He's there by himself. And uh, oh man, there's so much you could talk about related to this experience that I think you know, when you think that you've heard the whole story, you just really know you haven't heard, heard the whole story. You know, that's a great point, and that's why we have to keep having these discussions. Mike, if you'd like to expand on that. Well, the the pace of the story is deplorable. If you want to do the math, Jackie Robinson made his debut in 1947. Civil rights legislation wasn't signed until 20 years later. And it took till 1974 till Frank Robinson was the first African-American manager. So the pace uh, needs to be brought front and center. And, and thrown in people's faces and, and say, look, how long must this take? Because this is going on generations. We can talk decades within our lifetimes, Phil, Sam, and me, but this is going on generations that exceeds our lifetime. You know, so the pace needs to be kept at the forefront and, and and, and uh, a greater a greater con- conversation needs to be instigated. You know, the, the conversation is about the majority and the minority. And when you're in power, I don't know who in, in human history ever relinquished power willingly. It needs to be taken. And that's where we are right now. Uh, I don't want to mm-hmm. jump down the rabbit hole, but... That's where we are right now. The majority are having their power and authority threatened. Uh, and they really don't know how to react to it. Sorry. <laughs> but uh, I'll, I'll change well, the subject. I'll tell you. But, but, no, no, I, I'd actually like to, to go. Sorry, go ahead, Phil. Go ahead. No, I'm going to say, you know, you make a good point because when Jackie Robinson came into the National League, I'm sure there were people who felt the same way, that they're going to lose their job if they start to bring in some of these black baseball players because they had been playing against these guys. They knew the quality of play that was out there, and they knew if Jackie Robinson made good that there were going to be others to follow. And so uh, baseball history was going to be changed forever. And uh, so 
uh, yeah, it could have been some people who were really threatened by him being on the field that day. Sure. Uh, and, you know, once uh, Leo DeLip returned from suspension, he essentially told the players as much. Sam, you brought up the petition, and Leo had to put them in their place. He was like, there's going to be a lot more behind Jackie Robinson. You better get used to it. And damn, yes, some of you are going to lose, the, lose your jobs. <laughs> so if anyone put it plainly, that in a manner that needed to be said, uh, it was Leo. Everyone else was trying to be careful and delicate about it or just outright deceitful. Leo made it very plain. Say, you guys better recognize because this is only the beginning. Change is coming your way. Uh, and people who were quick to recognize that and adapt, well, they, they fared better. People who resisted uh, did not, you know, as simple as that. You well, know, I think you know, let's I'm, mention I'm a, one of those players. Um, sorry, sorry uh, Phil. I was going to say, uh, let's mention one of those players, Dixie Walker, the people's church, uh, you know, very quickly afterwards. I, it's, it, it's interesting, you know, he, he did – I was watching some of the World Series of 1947, and, you know, Dixie Walker did get a couple hits, and, and, and he was still there, so he survived the whole year playing with, with uh, that team, but – Bill, you know, Dixie Walker, I don't think, uh, you know, for one thing, his legacy was tarnished forever, and uh, I don't think he lasted much longer in the majors. Well, you know, what's interesting, we know about uh, Dixie Walker's story. Now, I had the pleasure of interviewing Roy Partlow, who was with Jackie Robinson the year before at Montreal, and Clay Hopper was the manager that year, and uh, according to Partlow, Partlow told me that Hopper never talked to him. He said Partlow, Partlow said that uh, he would go to Jackie Robinson, and he said, tell Partlow he's pitching today. And then Jackie would have to tell Partlow he was pitching. But you don't ever hear anything about uh, the experience that uh, Partlow faced when he was at Montreal is Jackie Robinson's teammate for a brief period. And, of course, Parlo never made it to the major leagues, and for all practical purposes, he's been a forgotten man. Mike? I can't add much to that. Uh, you're absolutely right, Phil. I mean, there's a narrative out there. We're only clued into maybe 20% of the full story that needs to be told. Yeah, I I would go with that, and I and I would probably think today when when they talk about Jackie Robinson, there there won't be many stories about say maybe a Jose Acosta, a Cuban who came up, and uh, as far as anybody knows, he didn't have any Negro blood in him or whatever, and uh, but yet he got called the same names that black players got called. And no one on the team would room room with him because they felt that you know he might be part black, even though he's on the big league team. Uh, actually, he was at Milwaukee in the American Association. Let me correct that. But no one would room with him. And uh, so uh, these are just some stories that probably need to be talked about today that probably won't be. And you'll, we'll get the same old refrain, uh, pretty much that we always get. But the story is more 
broad and deeper than we tend to hear it. And uh, so it's good to talk about it again, and especially in these times when race relations are not at their best, that we need to know these stories so that we can make some changes and make some improvements and go and, and have a different, uh, uh, say, a different history moving forward. How about that? How about that? You know, I, and I think this is an this is an this is an appropriate time, Sam, to thank you, Phil, for all the work you do. Because as you alluded to, the education needs to come from different places other than we're used to getting it from. You know, the uh, schools absolutely. aren't going to teach us this, not yet at least. So people like mm-hmm. yourself and, and 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 the historians of the like, I thank you, and I appreciate all the work you do. Well, th- well, thank you. And like I said, I, you know, I've had the pleasure to, you know, meet many people. Like I say, even talking to Roy Partlow, uh, Roy Partlow didn't talk to a lot of people. And, of course, he died back in 1987. And I just happened to be around long enough uh, to even interview people like uh, Sammy Haynes, who was a teammate with Jackie Robinson when he was at the Kansas City Monarchs in 1945 and, and different players like that, uh, Hilton Smith. I had a chance to interview Hilton Smith, and, and I'm at the age now where uh, I, I think I respect all of those interviews that I got when I was in my 20s more than ever because I really felt like I was blessed to fall upon that information. But there's still so many things I want to share, and I'm just you know praying that I get to uh, continue sharing for as long as I can and uh, maybe make a difference somewhere down the line. Well, Phil, once more, you have been a remarkable blessing to this podcast, and the information pouring through uh, because of you is just, uh, I'm so grateful and thankful uh, to to be able to bite your ear off. <laughs> so okay. thank you. I, I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. And so let's go to that. We're talking about modern times, uh, you know, Jackie's legacy, but the race relations right now uh, are, are not, you know, it, it, we still see many of the same things. Like you said, Mike, history repeats itself. Um, so it, and it, it, when we were talking about it, it kind of reminded me of sports radio, at least in the New York region, and Mike and I can attest to this, that it's still rather white. And, and still, I'm curious, uh, you know, with you being almost right smack in the middle of the country, do you think this is, you know, we're talking about one of the more progressive cities in the nation, uh, and yet the sports radio, and and I'm not taking away from the job a lot of these guys do. I think they're really good at their jobs. But there there have been many, many vacancies over the years, especially recently, and we keep seeing white spaces, you know, in, in terms of, uh, recently, somebody who unfortunately um, had to leave uh, morning, uh, the morning came back, and, and, and he's uh, uh, rehabilitated uh, uh, after some, some issues. But, uh, you know, it's just yet another white face getting the, well, the airwaves, if you will. So uh, what, what do you think about, I mean, it just seems like obviously it's a metaphor for all of society and all of culture. But the fact is that it's not just baseball that this is still a problem. It's all of sports as well. Yeah. 
you boy, you bring about something that uh, I experienced. Uh, I don't know if you know this. I, I used to be the assistant director of public relations for the Kansas City Royals. And um, in uh, 89, 90, right through there, I was the person who put the Royals' caravan together. And, of course, the Royals had this vast radio network out here in the Midwest. And so in the wintertime, we would go back and we would specifically go back to the radio stations that were carrying the broadcast. And I began to notice something about those radio stations and how it affected the fans. And here's what I noticed. Most of the Royals' uh, radio baseball games were carried on country western stations. And so, uh, or maybe, uh, I would say mostly country western stations in the Midwest. And so when we would go to a city like Wichita, they would advertise that we're coming in the winter on the, on the country western station. Of course, very few black people were listening to the country western station when the baseball game wasn't on. So we would go into a town like Wichita or, you know, you know Springfield, Joplin, different parts of Missouri, and there would be no black fans there because they didn't know that the team was coming. That's when I first realized that the station that the games are being broadcast on makes a difference. And I had never noticed that before until I experienced it. And you pretty much have the same thing now. When you look around the country and you see which stations carry the games, that, that, that is a small subtlety that is not being discussed whatsoever. Mike, uh, I'll pass it over to you. Well, you brought up sports radio here locally. We're listening to the same shows. And I could take this back to the 80s. My two all-time favorite sports radio personalities are Mr. Art Russ Jr. and Mr. Bill Daughtry. Uh, and, Sam, you're right. Uh, the industry is still dominated. Uh, and sports talk here locally is still dominated uh, by white voices. Uh, and I say Mr. Art Russ Jr. because he was first. First for me here in the city back in the 80s before sports radio was a thing. Uh, and he made the biggest impression on me. And Mr. Bill Daughtry, uh, just an incredible, incredible uh, person. And he had me on the sh on his show once. Uh, I called into his show regularly when he was on the radio, and he had me up on the show once. And uh, I just have nothing but thanks and appreciation for him. Uh, both gentlemen are African Americans, uh, and I, I really can't name a third. And I'm not trying to fabricate anything here. It's just the way it is. Art Russ Jr. and Bill Daughtry on my one and two, and I don't have a number three. Yeah. And, and you know, I didn't get a chance to hear Art Russ, you know, out here in the Midwest. But one thing I, I knew when I uh, worked at the Kansas City Royals, I remember only one black, you know, everyday broadcaster, you know, that was broadcasting, you know, the team. And if I'm correct, I don't remember his name, but he was with the Cleveland Indians. But I do remember at the same time the Chicago White Sox were the first team to have a Spanish broadcast in the American League uh, 
and so I thought those were unique. And these were going on in 1989, 87, 88, right through there. So, uh, uh, but right. still a lot of room for growth. And um, sure. And you know, even when I worked for the Royals, I was the only the third black person to ever work in the Kansas City Royals front office, and they were considered the best the best uh, organization in Major League Baseball. And I would I would reiterate the pace, the pace of change. It's the pace of change that I find very frustrating. I won't speak for anybody else. I'll just say that's what I find most I frustrating, find most the pace. I, uh, I'm not sure if you guys had any dead silence for me, but I am back. Unfortunately, I had to be in transit during this <laughs> podcast, but that's what – live show that's what uh, comes with a live show um okay so i'm trying to i'm trying to think of where where i wanted to go next um and i i oh yeah yeah i i remember exactly mike you were talking about those are the only two names that you can think of and i feel like the other names generally speaking that get into sports broadcasting are former athletes of you know retired retired athletes like Carl Banks or Bart Scott, for instance, uh, and 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 that that is a problem. Phil, if you want to pick up on that. No, no, that that's that is generally it. Uh, you know, it seems like you know a lot of athletes get in there, but you know, I, you know, I it's it's kind of interesting, and I know in in our particular city, uh, you know, over the years, uh, Frank White was in there for a while and. And then the, they they pulled Frank White and, and gave it to somebody else, and uh, so pretty people. A lot of people are upset about that. So, you know, there. Well, let me let me say one other thing too. Over the years, you know, I made different friends uh, with people who worked in Major League Baseball, and I know that there have been some race racial lawsuits that were settled out of court, so no one's ever able to talk about them. So. There is some things that went on in baseball that have not ever been discussed because they're not they're not known to the public and the people can't discuss them. So we're some interesting times, but I think I think that if baseball is to continue growing and becoming, you know, a world sport, I think once again we need to have the people who uh, who are in those markets that you want to enter in all phases of the game from the booth to the field, to the front office, you know, uh, we need to have people in all those areas. Phil, allow me to ask you this question. Magic Johnson with the Los Angeles Dodgers, and now you have LeBron James associated with the Boston Red Sox. The entrepreneurship, where are the entrepreneurs? Because, in most, you know, uh, aspects of life, we tend to say it starts at the top. So where are the entrepreneurial leaders who are going to, uh, you know, make these appointments without having to have this conversation? Wow. Well, you know, once again, another interesting question. You know, for years, I, you know, I asked many ball players this because you you come up, you play in the minor league system, you've been playing high school, you play in 
And then you've been playing baseball practically all your life, and then you were, when you retire, you open up a restaurant, something you have never done before. And I used to always ask guys, I said, you know, you ever thought about purchasing a minor league team? Because they were always pop, you know, popping up. Uh, Miles Wolf is a person I know. And, and uh, so, you know, there's, there was lots of opportunities for ballplayers to purchase minor league teams and begin to make some of these changes themselves. But even that wasn't uh, touched on. And, and you do have some guys that are trying to make a difference on the major level. But once again, I still think there's some opportunities at other levels that need to be sought out after as well. So ownership, uh, there's lots of room for ownership at all levels in baseball. And I'd like to see that happen more. And I I, I think in the, the 90s, in the 90s, there was uh, – I think I remember one lady, I think her father purchased a, a minor league team, and uh, this was a black lady. But for the most part, there has not been a lot of black owners, even of minor league teams. And, and it's just reminding me, uh, Jordan still owns the Hornets, correct? I, I'm not whether sure. Whether he does I'm not or sure. he doesn't, I question. should have included him as well. Well, I, I'm, I was just curious because, I, I mean, I'm even, like, uh, I, I do remember that they uh, were able to get the name back, but I don't think they've done much since they got their name back. But I know that he owned the Bobcats, uh, uh, and I think it's still the same franchise, technically, renamed. But anyway, we digress. What I, I'd like to go back to uh, specifically is the 1947 Brooklyn Dodgers and uh, uh, a team that Jackie Robinson, uh, Rookie of the Year, was able to help bring to the World Series. So, um, you know, we talked about, let's start back at that day where he wasn't able to take the showers uh, on April 15th, 1947, Phil. So what what are some of the things that you know in context of Jackie Robinson about the 1947 Brooklyn Dodgers? Well, if you go back to the showers, and I got that information from players, and then the other thing was um, he couldn't, of course, couldn't room in the same hotel, so uh, he pretty he pretty much uh, stayed at boarding houses in the black community, and uh, so he couldn't room at the hotel, which means he probably didn't eat with the team. But at game time, you were expected to be out there like you were part of the team, but the rest of the time, you kind of wonder how much were you a part of the team, and. That's Jackie Robinson, who was probably getting the best treatment that any of the any some of these players would ever get. I think he probably got a better treatment than Larry Doby did when he first came up. So, uh, but yeah, it, there was um, a, a lot of racism that was off the field. That I think probably there are more lessons to be learned about what went on off the field than what went on on the field. Of course. Everybody knows uh, Jackie Robinson, of course, became Rookie of the Year. But can you imagine how much better he might have hit if he didn't have all the pressure that you put on a ball player? If he could just go out there and play and not have the stress uh, of knowing, you know, and you feel like a member of the team, who knows, man? He might have hit 400 in his rookie season. Who knows? It's true, Mike. You just you never know how that uh, that stuff would go. 
Well, I think having to relearn an entire league after just one year at Montreal, the way he did it was outstanding. He won a batting title in 1949 uh, after two seasons of having to literally learn an entire league's pitching habits. I think that's remarkable. And after that, he hit over 300 in one, two, three, four, five, six, six consecutive seasons. Uh, and let's not forget his age range. You know, he wasn't a rookie here with the Dodgers until he was age 28. Uh, so you can imagine, or one can imagine, had he started his career with the Dodgers or in Major League Baseball as a younger man and adjusted mm. to the league, and, and adjusted to the league, say, by age 24 or 25, what he might have been capable of accomplishing in his prime years. Uh, but, you know, in 1949, at age 30, yeah, he hit 16 homers and drove in a career-high 124 RBIs. And that's after two seasons. But like I say, had he come into Major League Baseball as a younger man, into his prime seasons, I can only imagine what he might have accomplished. I think he might have even blown away the numbers that he posted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, so the fact, and, that and he, don't you know, the fact that he won a batting title in his third season, to me, is pretty damn remarkable, considering all the homework, you know, quote-unquote, that he had to do learning uh, an entire league's pitching staff. You know, I, I might mention, too, uh, don't forget about six World Series he was in, too. And, uh, you know, some guys are happy to get to the World Series one time. He's in the World Series six times before he retires. Last time, 1956. First time, 1947. That's quite an accomplishment. So I guess... Is we as we're talking, we we can't forget about how good a player he was, how his excellence on the field, as well as how he handled things off the field, you know, as well. So, um, yeah, and of course, the first black player to get into the Hall of Fame, nineteen sixty-two. So, um, right. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think I, don't think I knew that information either, um, and <laughs> I. That, so, so that that's so, I, you know, it almost is as if Jackie Robinson doesn't get enough credit for being the leader, when, like basically being the spark plug of the the Dodgers dynasty. Because, as Mike can attest, you know, understanding enough about Brooklyn as well as the history and relationship the Dodgers had with Brooklyn. Um, you know, that, that was the peak, that was the pinnacle of the Dodgers franchise history. And then they were just ripped out from, from underneath the, uh, the, the fan base's heart. But it, it, it really, it, it, it's, you know, we talk about how there needs to be more done. But when you really think about it and, and, and you frame it that way, you did, Phil. Um, and I'll go to you, Mike, on this next. But the way you frame that about the fact that they went to six World Series, I mean, that was easily the most successful period in Brooklyn baseball history up until that point. No question in my mind. <laughs> no question in my mind. Uh, Mike. Yeah, that was a great Mike, great period for Brooklyn baseball. Wow. Uh, w- Mike, if you want to expand on it from a Brooklyn standpoint. 
Well, mm-hmm. definitely their most their most successful span in their Brooklyn history. And Jackie Robinson was the spearhead of that effort. Yeah, they were a great team. They had Duke Snyder, Gil Hodges, Roy Campanella, uh, Carl Perillo. That was a great assemblage of talent. But Jackie was definitely at the forefront of that. And insofar as leaders, yeah, he was the leader. When, when you look at his his comportment versus adversity, that's a model for everyone in that clubhouse because nobody mm-hmm. else had to go what he went through. So there's no way, there's no way that he, just being Jackie Robinson, didn't impact his teammates. So I would call him the leader. Perhaps that was a clubhouse that didn't need a leader. You know, when you have uh, an assemblage of like minds on the field, you know, you don't necessarily need a leader if you're all of the like minds. But, you know, in this collection of players, no one went through what Jackie went through. And and his comportment uh, was a model even to many a white player. Uh, so I think that Bill, speaks you know, large. Well, I, I was, Go ahead. was going to say was Phil. No, Phil, I think um, uh, I'm wondering, um, considering you said that he came up as a shortstop with the Kansas City Monarchs, but he was at first base in that first season. Now, he, you could say he went into the Hall of Famer as a second baseman. Do you, do you think that he – had to endure more potential violence at first base, considering he was the the first person, whether you were safe or out, the opposition was seeing on on an, uh, an assist play. Yeah, I I think you know. Now I'm going back to my old baseball playing days myself. Uh, I think he he received more punishment as a batter. And because pitchers could throw at you. And so they could throw at you back then, and you had no covering. And I remember talking to Joe Black, and he said that they began to throw at black players a whole lot less when they started to get more black pitchers up there because they were going to start throwing at your guys just like you were throwing at, you know, the black player. So him up there by himself in that first season – I have to take take a look at it, but I'm sure he got hit a few times as well. You know that that's very interesting, Mike. Uh, just to think, like, where are you going to take punishment more? Uh, being the quote unquote first black player in Major League history uh, at the plate or at first base? I think I think Phil is correct. I think Phil is correct. He faced more and received more punishment in the batter's box because when Jackie was on the basis, he wore spikes as well. So there was opportunity to, you know, get one in every now and then, uh, not so much in the batter's box. So that that seemed to smooth itself out eventually. Yeah. Uh, there came a point where Branch Ricky said, all right, you know what? You do what you got to do, Jackie. And, and, you know, Jackie made his position 
quite clear and very clearly, don't mess with me, man. Let's just play baseball. And I think a lot of people fell in line. Yeah, and I just I just went and pulled up some data. Uh, in 1947, Jackie Robinson led the league in hit by pitch, uh, mm. which with seven, but he had nine. He had nine in 1947, so I'm wondering who, who led the league that year. But uh, yeah, he actually led the league, and uh, he had nine. He had nine in 47. He had 14. Got hit by 14 pitches in 19. Uh, Fifty-two. So, mm. and he had he got hit by a pitch seventy-two times in his ten-year career. Now, how would you like to have been that shortstop or second baseman with Jackie Robinson barreling down the baseline? You know, you have to take that <laughs> into consideration as well. <laughs> like I say, he wore cleats as well, and those spikes were just as sharp. So, yeah. So, I Phil, think, uh, let me ask you this. Okay. Uh, sorry that I keep sorry I keep interrupting you, Mike. But Phil, let me ask you that this in that context. When did the league and the public know Jackie Robinson has arrived? When when do you think the moment in the major league season was really where everybody was like, oh, this this is Jackie Robinson? I don't know if there was a specific day, but he came out of the out of the minor leagues when he was at Montreal, and he did so well at Montreal, and of course they want to say, well, that's the minor leagues. But you know, he batted what, three, almost three fifty at Montreal. I think it's three forty nine, something like that. Led the league, and uh, he and he had quite a few at bats, like four hundred at bats. But when he came to Brooklyn, he had five hundred ninety at bats that same year. Still managed to hit two ninety seven. So he's right at three hundred. You know, you. T- Give or take, you know, a week, you have a good week. He's a 300 hitter, right? So, um, you know, as far as uh, uh, the Dodgers as an organization were concerned, oh, he had arrived the day he arrived in Brooklyn. They knew he was going to be a good ball player. They just had to figure out where they were going to play him and, and get make the adjustments. But, uh, you know, some of the fans were slow to, to catch. If you had a guy now, that's, that had 155 games, 444 at-bats, and batted 349 for the Yankees, would you think he's going to make a good big league ball player? <laughs> I, would also, I would. I would. Also have to, I would also have to throw this out there. You have to think of uh, what was happening at the time. Jackie came aboard. But Gil Hodges was not yet on the team. He came up as a catcher and moved to first base because who was behind the plate and who was a better catcher for mm. Campanella? You know, so I think they all found uh, the best place for, for for themselves. Jackie at second, Gil at first, and Campy behind the plate. And let us, let us not well, also I forget I, that. If, go ahead. Good point. Good point. No, I was going to say I was going to say that uh, it, that's what's interesting. I guess in some ways of the 47 team is that it's kind of a hybrid of the pennant winner in 41 as well as what's to come. Keep, right. keep up with the thought, Mike. Well, let us not also forget that if it wasn't for Jackie, Roy Campanella wouldn't have been a Brooklyn Dodger. Because Roy thought, you know, Branch Rickey was full of it, that he was trying to sign him for his Negro League team 
the Brown Dodgers, and Campy didn't want anything to do with that. He was happy where he was in Baltimore. And it just so happened that uh, Effa Manley was putting together an all-star team uh, to go to, I believe it was Venezuela, and Jackie and Campy were going to play on that team. And Jackie and Campy uh, were unknowingly staying at the same hotel here in New York City. And when Campy got back to the hotel Jack and he told Jackie about what had happened, Jackie said, no, 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 you got it wrong. Call him back. Uh, and it was... I think once they landed in Venezuela, Campy got a hold of ja- uh, excuse me, Branch Rickey and explained to him his misunderstanding of the situation because Branch Rickey wasn't clear about it. He was very vague about what he was alluding to. Uh, and it was while Campy was in Venezuela with the All-Star team that Branch Rickey and Campy finally reached an agreement. And as soon as he got off the plane back in America, uh, he came racing to Brooklyn over to Montague Street where you say that plaque is and uh, signed on with the Brooklyn Dodgers. But that wouldn't, have hap- that wouldn't have had happened without Jackie informing Roy, hey, no, no, uh, you misunderstood what's going on. And I, I, have, I have another name for you. And, and he probably won't be mentioned today either, but a guy named Whitey Kurowski. He led the National League in hit by pitchers, hit by pitch. The only guy who got hit more times than Jackie Robson in IP forty seven. <laughs> Whitey Kurowski for for St. Louis, he got hit ten times, and uh, he beat Jackie, who got hit nine times as a rookie. And so, uh, yeah, he, his name won't be mentioned today, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I. Uh... I'm certainly going to have to do a little bit more research on that one. Now I'm kind of curious about that ball player. Um, I, I'm, I'm, let's see where to go next. Um, we have uh, just a little bit over 15 minutes left. So I'll ask you first, Phil, um, the, black fan, the black baseball fan in 1947, um, what, what was the environment like? How many – uh, uh, black fans do you think the major leagues had outside of the Negro Leagues? And what, what, what did Jackie Robinson's presence, as well as other black ballplayers, do for the, the, the basic, basically white baseball at the time, Major League Baseball's uh, demographics of fans? Yeah, it, you know, it's really interesting, the black fan, and really black culture, um, you know, uh, because when Jackie Robinson goes over to the to the Brooklyn Dodgers, many black people become Brooklyn Dodgers fans. And some of those people would actually go to see the Brooklyn Dodgers and quit going to see Negro League teams play. And so within a few years, the Negro National League um, is out of business. What's also interesting is that uh, – the the price that was paid for those players, you know, sometimes people ask me, I've, I've never been a big Effa Manley fan because I always felt like Effa Manley did a lot to bring the price of black players down. So when she was selling ball players for, eight, for eight, you know, 8000 5000 maybe 10000 at the most, she was selling ball players that were worth 100000 and that became the standard. So, you know, teams could say, you know what, 
we we got Larry Doby for ten thousand, so we're not going to pay no more than ten thousand for this guy you got here. And so Kansas City, they couldn't get more. I think they got seventy five hundred or maybe fifteen thousand for Satchel Page. But if you go back to, uh, a matter of fact, I'm looking at something I have here posted. There was a guy by the name of his name was Bill Brinzel. Bill Brinzel. And the Pirates paid fifty thousand dollars for him in nineteen thirty one. You don't even know who he is. You gotta be like a serious baseball fan to even know who he was. Uh Lefty Groves, when he was purchased uh, uh by the um athletics, they played close to a hundred thousand dollars for him in the nineteen thirties, nineteen twenty nine, nineteen thirty, right in there. But they're picking up ball players for $10,000 that were worth millions. And so the Negro League goes out of business, and the black fans, they pretty much deserted in the major cities. And so teams, just to keep afloat, uh, the Kansas City Monarchs and who, who go on to 55, the Birmingham Black Barons and teams like that who managed to somehow survive, they survived not by playing major cities but by playing small to mid-sized towns who weren't affected uh, and where people couldn't actually go and see a lot of ball players in the major league. So that's how they survived. But, uh, yeah, it, it was like a wholesale raid, and the Negro Leaguers, uh, you know, they didn't benefit. Now, the other thing is when they paid, like I remember uh, talking to Jim Lamarck, and Jim Lamarck uh, and those guys, they didn't want to be sold by Tom Baird, who was the owner of the Monarchs, because if he sold them for 5000 he never gave them any money. So maybe uh, they're making, you know, three, $400 a month playing for the Monarchs, and then he sells their contract to the minor leagues. Then they go to the minor leagues. Now they're making $200 a month, and they never got any of the signing money. So it, it's, once again, it's, there's, there's more to this story uh, than that we talk about. But I, I often thought F. Manley, who was the first to sell players, who pretty much set the standard. Uh, for what it was going to cost to pick up a, a black player from a major league team or a Negro major league team. Mike? You see, I just received an education because I understood Effa Manley as the one who instigated teams to be compensated for their talent when Major League Baseball came around seeking players. Uh, but the way you frame it, Phil, you know, it gives me different context. Uh, but F. Manley at the same time was one of several owners who thought Larry Doby was going to be the first one to break the color barrier and not Jackie Robinson. Uh, but that's the way history turned out. And as we discussed, you know, Larry Doby did not have uh, as good initial experience as per se, Jackie might have. Uh, Larry Doby encountered a lot more uh, adversity and, and controversy within his own locker room than Jackie did. But uh, I just received an education on Nefer Manley. I, I never heard it put quite in that context. I thought she was the one who, who, who stood up to Major League Baseball instigating that if you want our talent, we must be compensated because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they were coming in and effectively trying to steal talent away from them. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. 
interesting yeah, and, to find out. Yeah, and, you know, I, I've stepped at this uh, subject so long over the years that, you know, I tried to investigate it from every angle. And then the other thing, being a baseball fan myself, right, and, and you see, you know, these big numbers tossed around. Uh, uh, I'll give you an example. Um, uh, the Cleveland Buckeyes uh, sold uh, – uh, oh shucks! I'm trying. Uh, Sam Jethro to the Dodgers, and uh, for five thousand dollars. And then uh, a few years later, they sell Sam Jethro to the Boston team for a hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Tell me what what was right about that and what was wrong about it. And those are the things I sit down and I try to evaluate what I think about them is relative to what I know uh, about baseball history as a whole. So how do you buy a ball player for 5000 So they knew that they were getting ball players at a discount, but, you know, it was, it was just an interesting time because, once again, the black fan had deserted the game. And, um, you know, some of these, these owners, they were happy to get $5,000, but, if they had a stuck together, they could have changed the whole complexity of integration. It probably made it a better experience for everyone. And I also think those owners knew exactly what kinds of money they were exchanging. Because, hell, in the 1880s, 1890s, players were being purchased for tens of thousands of dollars. 10000 12000 mm-hmm. You know, and here we are discussing these figures. 60 years later. So I think these owners knew exactly uh, to say, you know, to say they were getting over insofar as the price, the prices they were paying. Uh, not much difference from 60 years ago, if not the mm-hmm. same. So if anything, they were trying to keep, keep, uh, keep those figures suppressed. And you might say they were a little successful in that endeavor. But uh, yeah, then... Yeah. I, I, I brought up something that I wrote about the Atlantic City Backrack Giants because you asked about the the atmosphere, the crowd, uh how that might have been. Uh I'll take you back what, twenty seven years back to the year nineteen twenty. Uh and the New York age uh they were a prominent prominent paper here in New York. They covered Negro League Baseball. And there was an author, he was an editor of, uh, he was the sports editor of the New York Age, uh, Ted Hooks. And he covered a game. Uh, but I'm just going to paraphrase something that he wrote about a game in 1920 to just give us an idea of what the atmosphere might have been like. Uh, and I'm jumping in the middle. Inside the stadium. Now, this is at Ebbets Field, coincidentally. This is the Backrack Giants versus the New York Lincoln Giants in 1920. And he writes, Inside the stadium, the press treated the games as social events as much as sporting contests. The New York Age gave several columns of their coverage to descriptions on the field, the team uniforms, the jazz band, the spectators, and the noise they made. Concluding, the game proved the colored fans the equal in deportment of any race that has ever graced 
Ebbets Field. Period. And mm-hmm. I, I, like I said, I bring that up only to maybe just give us a, a, a small sense of the atmosphere that day of April 15th. Insofar as the African Americans in attendance, of course, this was going to be a predominantly white crowd, and I brought up a 1920s game between two Negro Leagues teams. So, yeah, the crowd is going to be different, but insofar as uh, the atmosphere, maybe the frame of mind going to see Jackie Robinson that day, perhaps, you know, this uh, that last line, the game proved the colored fans the equal in deportment of any race that has ever graced Ebbets Field. And that's a sentence that I will not forget ever since coming across it in researching that game in that era. That's fascinating. I appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, I I want to bookend with um, I'll start with you, Mike, with this. Um, so we were talking about the legacy of Jackie Robinson in Brooklyn. So I will preface it with this, Mike, and I'll pass it right on to you afterwards. Instead of a plaque at 215 Montague Street, what about a statue of Jackie Robinson sliding into home plate? That would be nice. That would be very nice. Uh, you have my vote. Here in Brooklyn, you know, New York City does a bad job of, of preserving all its history. It's not just baseball, all its history. It's an ever-evolving city, uh, and, you know, it takes a lot for the city to really be on top of its history and cherish it, take care of it, and promote it. That being said, here in Brooklyn, you know, uh, we still pay tributes to Jackie Robinson. There's a bunch of murals out there. Uh, There's one at a park I discovered on Sullivan Place. It's called Dodgers Playground, and there's a mural of him on the side of a building. Uh, there's one at Bedford Avenue at Rite Aid, right across from uh, the Ebbetsfield Apartments. Thank you, Dwayne Reed, for, the, for, for commissioning those murals. Uh, there's also one, a mural here at the post office on Flatbush Avenue over by uh, or close to Marine Park. But around town, you know, we have the Jackie Robinson School on McKeever, on McKeever Place. Uh, there was an original mural. It has since been redone. Uh, and it's beautiful. As you mentioned, the plaque at Montague Street, that's where the Brooklyn Dodgers has had their executive offices, uh, and that's the location where Jackie Robinson signed. And the statue, as we noted before, at MCU Park with the Brooklyn Cyclones playing Coney Island, the statue of Jackie Robinson and Pee Wee Reese. But, no, Jackie Robinson needs his own statue uh, commemorating just him. Uh we have the giant number 42 at City Field. Uh, here in Brooklyn, we have two playgrounds, two New York City playgrounds that are named after Jackie Robinson, which I'm not so sure a lot of people are aware of. Uh, what else? We have the Jackie Robinson Parkway. You know, so here in Brooklyn, his name remains his name remains at the forefront, just like Gil Hodges. We have a bridge, we have a street, we had a bowling alley. Carl Erskine, he has his own street here in Brooklyn. Uh, but there's a lot more going on dedicated to Jackie Robinson uh, than any other Brooklyn Dodger. And, of course, I failed to mention the commemorative home plate 
at the former Ebbets Field uh, that commemorates that this game that we speak of on April 15th, 1947. Uh, that was placed there, not quite sure, maybe eight years ago, something to that effect, but uh, there's that as well. So Jackie Robinson's name is sprinkled around Brooklyn still, and he remains in our conversations. Uh, for anybody listening live, uh, it's possible that it will cut out at um, 90 minutes, uh, but by all means, please go to our archives, uh, whatever, wherever you listen to podcasts, and uh, we'll, we'll, we're probably going to bleed over. <laughs> so, Phil, I want you to pick up from where he left off. Um, I, 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 I know I've asked you this a bunch of times, but um, have, have you been to Brooklyn and have you been able to go out to where Evans Field used to be? No, I have not been to Brooklyn. Uh, been to Pasadena, where his house no longer stands. Uh, they tore it down in the 70s, believe it or not. They still didn't see Jackie Robinson's childhood home as uh, being worth preserving even up until the 1970s. So uh, so, so I have not been to Brooklyn, and uh, I hope one day to come. Um, actually, I take that back. I was in Brooklyn, uh, believe it or not, in 1992. I did an all-night radio show there. Um, um, so uh, th- I think that was the last time I've actually been to Brooklyn But I'm looking forward to coming Soon as this pandemic is over Maybe we can do some things when I get out there And, J- you know, Jackie Robson holds a special place in my life Because uh, is a uh, young child in the fifth grade the, base- the first baseball movie I ever saw Was outdoors on a playground And it was the Jackie Robinson story And they bought it in uh, as a summertime activity to be a diversion for young people to keep them out of trouble. And that was the night I saw the Jackie Robinson story. It wasn't on TV. So, uh, you know, he holds a special place in my life because at that time I'm just getting started with learning baseball. And, uh, you know, that was I was a fifth grader then. And uh, was that about five decades ago? <laughs> I'm still here talking about baseball. So it's, it's been a great run, but it started with Jackie, among, amongst other things. Oh, that's uh, – I really appreciate you sharing that element of it. You know, I, it, it's not just the the biggest, the overall legacy uh, of him. It, it is very personal for you, Phil. Indeed. Indeed. Mike, uh, you had uh, something else to mention regarding uh, Brooklyn and Jackie. Phil mentioned Jackie's house in Pasadena, and I – Forgot to mention Jackie Robinson's house. Rob, excuse me, Jackie Robinson's house here in Brooklyn on Cortelia Road. I think it's uh, East 35th. And out front, there's a plaque in front of the in front of the house. Uh, whoever owns it today, but uh, a plaque commemorating, you know, Jackie Robinson lived here. Wow. And I've never uh, biked by that, uh, uh, so you know, I, I'm certainly. Uh, big into biking Brooklyn, Mike, so I'll have to uh, loop back around to that. Um, I, I, we're, we'll bring it to, uh, to the, uh, the wrapping up portion of our show, but first of all, I, I want to thank uh, Mr. Phil Dixon, Negro League historian extraordinaire, for joining us today and, and helping to, to, to basically put a little uh, a brief air into this story, expand 
on this. And, and there's always so much different places, like you've said, Phil, there's always something else to uncover about the story. And, and I also appreciate that you, you know, you talk about the way that, that you know, we have many different broadcasts today talking about the Jackie Robinson story and talking about this day in baseball history. Um, and they do it, and, and of course they should do it as positively as possible, but sometimes they do, they, they, they need, like, like you said, you, but we all feel as if the full story needs to be told whether or not it's positive. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a great story. It's an American story, but if you don't tell it from the full context of what was going on in America, what led up to the event, what happened, you know, shortly thereafter, and the legacy of uh, Jackie Robinson, and, and hit on the pro and the con, I, I think um, you, you, you just missed too much. And, but it just helps you to understand how great achievement of Jackie Robinson crossing the color barrier was and how it affected many things and um, how some of those things still need to be changed today. So there's still work to be done. And I'm sure if Jackie Robinson was here today, he'd be working on some of these things as well. Well said. Thank you. Um, the Brooklyn Trolley blogger, Mike LeColon, thank you for joining us today. And um, like we, we just said, you know, it's, it's, it's a time to speak about the, the entire story and, and make sure it's positive to talk about the negative things. Absolutely. Uh, there is no positive without negative. There's no negative without positive. You need one to compare the other by. Uh, so the whole story needs to be told. Uh, and one of my greatest thrills in life was meeting Sharon Robinson when they dedicated the Ebbetsfield flagpole over here at Barclays Center. She was there, and, you know, I knew what was going on. I, I didn't know she was going to be there, but I showed up to take my pictures, and there she was, and I struck up a little conversation, uh, and I'm, I was thrilled, and I told her how appreciative I was of all her father's efforts, and, uh, you know, we spoke. And uh, there's still lots to be done. Uh, I'm sure, you know, Jackie Robinson was a strong-headed individual. He spoke his mind. He was opinionated. And, you know, I'm not so sure he'd be very happy right now. I think he'd have a lot, a lot to say. That's a great point. Um, I, I want to give you an opportunity, as we like to call it on here, shameless plug, uh, Mike. Go ahead. It's Brooklyn Charlie Blogger just a spin on the Brooklyn Trolley Dodgers. Uh, that's the way it started. But it's just where I hang out and root for all the New York City sports teams, my favorite teams, and all of them. You know, I give everyone equal share. Uh, but I have my favorites in my life in Brooklyn. That's where I celebrate my life in Brooklyn. I love this place. And I love the history, and I love the sports involved in it. And I just put it all into one site, you know. So that's it. You know, I'm not a big promoter. Brooklyn Trolley Blogger. Thanks, as always, Mike. And uh, Mr. Phil Dixon, by all means, uh, shameless plug away. Tell everybody where they can reach well, you. Well, they can reach me uh, by going to my uh, website, which is uh, NLB, like Negro League Baseball, so it's NLBalive.com. You go over there, and uh, you can go into the gift shop and purchase my latest book, 
And if you purchase them there from there versus getting them on Amazon, I can sign them for you since we're not out uh, doing many live appearances, but I can certainly sign them for you or anyone you like. And, um, uh, and of course, uh, my Twitter page, uh, if you go to Twitter, at Negro League Man, I try to keep you engaged as I can with Negro League facts, and uh, I'm sure I'll post something on Jackie Robinson today. I don't know. I may mention the name Dick Littlefield. I don't know if you know that name. They won't mention that one today, but uh, that's who uh, uh, the Giants traded for Jackie Robinson in 1956. You know, who is Dick Littlefield? That's what we want to know. Uh, we know Jackie Robinson is, but uh, Dick Littlefield and $35,000. So, anyway, it's been great talking about it. And, uh, actually, I like to write about it, too. So, uh, I enjoy this topic and uh, still working on new projects. Excellent. Well, best of luck with all those new projects. And we want to, we urge everybody out there to go to nlbalive.com as well. Uh, as wherever you know you can you can uh, pick up his books. You got so many different books on so many aspects of Negro League baseball. It, it, it's uh, just really a, a blessing, Phil. So thank you again for doing all that you do. Um, and I also want to thank, of course, the audience. Thank you all for listening today. Uh, keep the Jackie Robinson story alive. Make sure that it's. Uh, we're, we're expanding on it, and, um, you know, stay, uh, stay dry out there for everybody in the tri-state. Uh, thank you, Mike. Thank you, Phil. And uh, thanks to everybody out there. We'll catch you next time. Take care. Well, thank you. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC.